0: I wonder how many of you have ever played chess? I love the game, I played it all the way through school. Chess, at its best, is a tense and exciting game, a battle of wits. It can have you on the edge of your seat. If you've never played the game, there are three things you need to know about it. First of all, chess is a contest, a war on a board. It's black versus white, and one side is out to defeat the other. Chess is a battle. Second, chess is all about strategy. There is only one way to win, and that is by outthinking your opponent. Good chess players are thinking five or six moves ahead and can accurately predict what their opponents are going to do. Chess is all about making the right move at the right time. Finally, the game of chess is focused on the king. The king is the most important piece. It's the king that you're out to capture. At the end of the game, only one king is left standing. So chess is a contest decided by strategic moves that ends with one victorious king. Now why do I tell you that? It's because I want us to try and read John 7 like a chess match. What we have here is a great contest, a battle going on between good and evil. What we have here are strategic moves being played by both sides. The chief priests are trying to trap Jesus and catch him out. Jesus is trying to teach the people who he is without saying too much. For if he does, he knows that you'll end up dead prematurely. But what is clear is that by the end of this contest, only one king is going to be left standing. So we as readers need to make sure that we have placed ourselves on the right side. This is tense and gripping stuff. John 7 should have us on the edge of our seats and get us thinking as deeply as we can. What I'm going to do for the next few moments is to try and focus on the moves that Jesus makes. I want us to really understand what he says about himself so that we're fully aware of what type of king he is. And at the end of this, we'll return to the chess metaphor and make sure that we've backed the winner With our lives. The first move that Jesus makes demonstrates that he is a servant. He is the servant king. I've described John 7 like a great contest, but it is not a popularity contest. Jesus is not interested in winning (laughs) empty plaudits or the adulation of the crowds, neither is he interested in offering mere entertainment. Far bigger things are at stake here. Jesus has not come to be a celebrity. He has come to be a servant. And we see this in the opening section, verses 1 to 13. It's festival time. All the Jews from the rural regions are descending on the big city for a feast. There will be thousands of people there. All eyes will be on Jerusalem. As a result, Jesus' brothers are convinced that finally this will be his moment. Jesus can turn up in the city, do a few of his spectacular miracles and win everyone over. With the whole nation behind him, he'll then have the army he needs to throw the Romans out. This is their plan. In the brothers' mind, it's time for Jesus to cease being a quiet figure in the countryside and become instead a truly public figure. The big national, political, military figure that they dream of. But of course, as we see in these verses, Jesus is having none of it. He hasn't come just to perform miracles. For miracles on their own do not produce faith. Just look at verse 5. Jesus' brothers have seen plenty of his miracles, but as yet they do not believe in him at all. Neither has Jesus come to lead an army or create a fervor of nationalistic triumphalism, which is precisely what doing miracles at the festival would have set in motion. All that would have done is bring the Roman army down on their heads, and thousands of ordinary Jews would have died. No, Jesus knows his time has not yet come. In verse 7, he talks about the hatred of the world that is lining itself up against him. Jesus knows that only once will he be able to take that hatred onto himself. In only one way will he be able to take all the evil ranged against him and defeat it once and for all. And that time will come at the cross at the cross he will serve us with his life and only after that will his name become fully public not just in israel but right around the world jesus is not the celebrity king or the military king he is the servant king the second move that jesus makes is to start teaching He shows himself to be a speaker of truth. He is the speaking king. The next section is verses 14 to 24. After initially staying behind, Jesus does make his way to the festival. He arrives there halfway through, and at just the right moment, he begins speaking. Verse 15 tells us that Jesus speaks with such authority and wisdom that it amazes the people. In response, Jesus again states that the strength of his teaching comes from the fact that he's not seeking glory or attention for himself, but he's come to serve his Father. He's come to direct the crowds to God. Ultimately, many of the people there that day will not listen to Jesus, for they have already decided what they want God to say to them. They want to hear God speak, of vanquishing Rome, not challenging them on their own integrity and devotion. As a crowd, they have already decided that if they don't hear what they want to hear, then they're going to reject this teaching outright, as well as the person giving the message. Jesus gives a very good example of the hardness of their hearts in this regard. He challenges the Jewish leaders on their use of God's law. They're currently turning the law to their own devices, making it say what they want it to say. If you read the Old Testament, you will discover that the Sabbath was meant for God's glory. It was a day for people to honour the Lord and enjoy his presence. It was also a day for the benefit of human beings. God gave us the Sabbath for rest and recuperation, to encourage wholeness of body, mind and spirit. The Sabbath is a day for peace and love and joy. However, the Jewish leaders were using the Sabbath as a political weapon. They were using the Sabbath to mark who was in and who was out of the kingdom. They have turned the Sabbath into an oppressive legalism that made them look important and forced the people to honour them. As Jesus speaks, he emphatically reveals their hypocrisy. They will circumcise a baby on the Sabbath. They will cut a small piece of the body away to make a small piece of that child acceptable to God. But they won't let Jesus heal They won't let him restore a whole body and lead that person wholeheartedly to worship God as he did with the paralysed man in chapter 5. This makes no sense. No sense at all. And the whole crowd there listening that day realised this. All of them, apart from the chief priests and Pharisees, of course. So Jesus' second move was not to come and use force or violence. It was to start Speaking, He came to speak God's truth into the world. He came to expose sin and evil and he came to direct us to God. As Jesus speaks to the crowd, he demonstrates them how to live in God's best way. And we would be foolish not to listen. Jesus is the speaking king. The third move that Jesus makes is to declare that he has been sent from God. Precisely for this moment in history. This is verses 25 to 36. As Jesus is there speaking in the temple courts, people are beginning to question who he is. They're also beginning to wonder, why has he not been arrested yet? For they know that the religious leaders are already out to get him. And as they reflect on these things, some of them begin to ask whether he is indeed God's Messiah, God's chosen and anointed king, as promised by the prophets of old. In this moment, Jesus doesn't call himself the Messiah outright, for he knows that would be far too inflammatory. If he said those words amid the heightened emotions of a national festival, he knew a revolution would instantly begin and the swords would come out. As we saw earlier, Jesus knows his time has not yet come. And the conversations that we've already looked at prove that to be the case. Even his own brothers haven't understood what they need to about him yet, let alone the ordinary people in the crowd. So instead of calling himself the Messiah, Jesus starts to speak about himself as being sent. Jesus declares to the crowd in verses 28 and 29 that he has been sent from God. That is where he got the knowledge from to speak the truth that he has been doing. That is where he got the power from to perform the miraculous signs that he's become known for. Water into wine, healings, feeding 5,000, walking on water. Now you would have thought, having seen some of those miraculous signs, that the crowds would be getting it by now. But so many, as of yet, have not been able to put the pieces together. And Jesus is very blunt as to the reason why this is the case. He says that the reason the crowds do not truly recognize him yet is because they don't really know the Father who sent him. They might think that they know God, but over time they've become deluded. For a while now, the Jewish people have left the righteous path. Over the years, they've ignored God's word and turned to various idols. And as a result, the God that many of them now worship is a God formed in their own image, not the God of the Old Testament. Oh, how true this is! So many people in the world today worship a God that they formed themselves. They have imagined the God that they think they would like, and then they choose to worship that rather than the true God as revealed in the Bible. In truth, This is a path to disaster. It is a path that leads us to not recognising Jesus for who he really is, even when he's standing right before our very eyes. As the confrontation continues, Jesus comes back to this language of being sent by God in verse 33. When the chief priests and Pharisees send guards to arrest Jesus for the commotion he is causing, Jesus tells those guards that he will soon be returning to the one who sent him. It's another great indication that Jesus is operating like a great chess player. He's thinking five or six moves ahead. He knows the end game from the beginning, and he will not make his move before the right time. Jesus knows that the path ahead of him is death. Resurrection and then ascension back to God, from where he would pour out the Holy Spirit. Now those listening that day could not possibly have understood all of that yet. But the guards were clearly impressed by what he said, for they do not lay their hands upon him. Let's be clear about Jesus' third move. He declared that he was the king sent by God. Jesus' fourth move was to announce that he was the king who would pour out the Holy Spirit. This is verses 37 to 39. As I said earlier, this big confrontation, this great chess match, takes place at a Jewish festival. And verse 2 of this chapter told us exactly which festival this was. It was the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles was one of three big annual pilgrimages for which the Jews living out in the countryside would all travel into Jerusalem for. When they got there, they would make themselves booths or tabernacles to stay in overnight. And these temporary shelters were a reminder of how the Israelites lived in the wilderness as they travelled from Egypt to the Promised Land the festival of tabernacles was also an agricultural (coughs) festival it was the climax of the harvest season when the people would celebrate god's gracious provision to them as they all traveled into jerusalem they would carry with them grapes and olives wine and fresh water as a reminder of all that god had given them now at the end of this festival each year something dramatic happened The people would process up into the temple and they would pour their wine and water out before the Lord. It was one great thank you to God for how he had provided for their ancestors in the wilderness years ago and how he was still providing for them today. Seeing the water flow out into the temple was a very vivid symbol of this. Now that we know that background, just look at what Jesus does next. Jesus uses this moment of water being poured out in the temple to make a great announcement. Verse 37. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow. From within them. From now on, it will be Jesus who provides for the people's needs. From now on, people are invited to come to him for the water they need for life. Jesus has already made this promise in this gospel once before. He told the Samaritan woman at the well in chapter 4 the exact same thing. But now he is saying it in the temple courts before the whole crowd... Only Jesus can sustain their lives. John tells us that the living water he was talking about was the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had not arrived yet, but the Holy Spirit would be poured out after Jesus had been glorified. This is one of the truly great promises of Scripture. Our whole world is parched and thirsty And the Holy Spirit is what the world needs. Every human being needs the refreshing, restoring, life-giving Spirit welling up inside of them. The promise of the Spirit is the promise of God's personal presence within our lives. Every moment of every day. From within us, God meets all of our needs and guides us to glory. Again and again in John's Gospel, Jesus is portrayed as the great King who gives the Holy Spirit. And that is because for the Holy Spirit to enter our lives, our hearts need to be prepared first. Our hearts require the forgiveness and the purification of the cross before God can come and take up residence within them. Again, the crowds there that day would not have understood all this yet. But these are the next moves to come in the great chess match that God is going to win against sin and evil. Jesus is the spirit-giving king. Now, of course, on hearing these great words of Jesus in the temple, more and more people are starting to question, is Jesus really the Messiah? And consequently, we now see them starting to turn to Scripture and analysing whether Jesus meets all that they were taught to expect. In verses 40 to 44, we get this really interesting little scene. The crowd knew that the Messiah should come from Bethlehem. The prophet Micah had told them that. The crowd also knew that the Messiah should come from the line of David. Samuel had taught them that. So they begin to question Are these things true of Jesus? Of course, we know that they're perfectly true of Jesus. He was born in Bethlehem in the line of David. But these Jews in Jerusalem, who are only meeting Jesus for the first time, they don't know that yet. To them, all they know is that he's travelled from Galilee for the big festival. I want us to make sure as we read this chapter that we know that everything we have seen and heard Jesus say is perfectly backed up by the Old Testament scriptures. We've seen Jesus to be the servant king. That was foretold by Isaiah. We have seen Jesus to be the speaking king who teaches God's truth. That was foretold by Moses as he wrote about the great prophet who would come in Deuteronomy. We've seen Jesus as the king sent by God, the Messiah. That was foretold by the likes of Jeremiah and Zechariah. We've seen Jesus as the spirit-giving king. That was seen perfectly by Ezekiel. Jesus really is the king that all of scripture points towards. The fulfilment of hundreds of years of history as the members of the crowd there that day began to slowly realise that they would come to faith. May that be true for us as well. As we see Jesus fulfil all the great Old Testament promises, may it give us greater confidence in our faith. It's now time for us to bring our thoughts to a close. And as promised earlier, I want us to return to the illustration of a chess match. (coughs) Chess is a contest, a battle between two sides. In this passage, we've seen the battle between good and evil, truth and lies, Jesus and the religious establishment. Chess is a game of strategy where the right moves need to be made at the right time. We've seen just how aware Jesus is of how his life will play out. It's now time for teaching. The time for his victory will come at the cross, an empty tomb. And finally, we said that when a chess match finishes, only one king is left standing. And it's with that thought that I'd like to finish. In Jesus' day, the chief priests and the Pharisees wanted to be the kings of the land. They wanted to be the power figures who set out all the rules. They wanted to reign as God's representatives to the people. And throughout this passage, Jesus undermines them and reveals their hypocrisy. And he then calls the people to come to him for living water, not them. The pride of the religious leaders was never going to stand for this. So in those final verses verses 45 to 52 they label Jesus a deceiver and pronounce that anyone who believes in him is cursed Interestingly there is only one person who is bold enough to stand out from his peers Nicodemus the same Nicodemus who we saw meeting with Jesus in John chapter 3 he has the courage to challenge his colleagues. In verse 51 he points out that they have never given Jesus fair hearing like he had that night. But of course the rest of the leaders are far too hardened ever to listen to Nicodemus' wisdom. Instead they lash out at him. They question whether he too is from Galilee, which they already know full well that he isn't. And then they smirk, well no prophet comes from Galilee. Now, call me a pedant if you like, but that also is nonsense. Both Jonah and Hosea in the Old Testament came from Galilee, and the religious leaders would never have doubted their authenticity as prophets. This final cameo then goes to show what happens when we allow pride and self importance to take over our lives. We become deluded by power and personal ambition. These religious leaders are never going to bow the knee to Jesus because they know if they do, they'll need to give up all of their own status. Do you see? Life is like a game of chess and only one king can remain standing in our hearts at the end. As John writes his gospel, he is encouraging us to realise that the only one king who is going to win this jewel is King Jesus. And if we have put anything else in his place in our hearts, it has to go before God knocks it over himself. So let's finish with some personal questions. Having read John 7, Will we allow Jesus to be king of our hearts? Will we try to act like him, serving others and speaking the truth? Will we allow ourselves to be sent out in the power of the Holy Spirit, just like he was, to make his name known in the world? And will we seek to read more about King Jesus and follow scripture all our days? If so, we can rest assured that we are on the winning side as God finishes his chess match against evil and sin. And for that, we will say, hallelujah.